Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 23. I have really good news before I give you some bad news. The good news is I'm only looking at seven verses today. Bad news is I'm taking my time. Okay. But if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn over there. I um, was intrigued this week. I got one of those news blurbs out. And one of the things that came out was uh, a letter from a fellow by the name of Charles Krauthammer, um, columnist for the Washington Post, Fox News, a variety of places. And um, basically it said th- these will probably be his last words. He, he, he's dying of cancer. He'll probably die in the next couple weeks, according to the article. And, and he just, he just kind of shared where he is with everybody in the short letter. It was really, so it was intriguing. I have it here. I, was going to, I don't know that I'll read it all the way through, but he's a, he's a gifted writer. And he starts out by saying, I have been uncharacteristically silent these past 10 months. I had thought that silence would soon be coming to an end, but I'm afraid I must tell you now that fate has decided on a different course for me. And he unpacks what has happened in the last 10 months and ends the letter um, with, with humility, with honesty, on a very positive note. He says, I leave this life with no regrets. It was a wonderful life, full and complete with great loves and great endeavors that make it worth living. I am sad to leave, but I leave with the knowledge that I lived the life that I intended. I mean, what, what, what saddens me from all I can tell, there's no evidence that he knows Jesus Christ. So I'm really, really saddened in the way I'm praying in these last couple weeks is that some of you will get to him with the gospel. I mean, really, I... But, 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 but I, I read those words from, from a man that doesn't even know Jesus, and I said, wow, positive, hopeful, thankful, and honest. What would your last words be? If you, you had to write something, and I had to read it to the congregation, what would you say? Today, we want to look at those words from David. Now, as you go on and read into the book of Kings, David will verbally say other things before he dies, okay? But, but this is something that, that David wants to be written down because it's significant. It's, 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 it's from him, but it's from God. It's inspired. And he wants you and I to go away and know this. So it's, it's, it's very, very, very significant. But, but I was thinking, as we've looked at the life of David, it hasn't been an easy life for David, has it? Best I can tell, and the, 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 these are just rough numbers, about half of his life was filled with tragedy and difficulty. I just listed a couple things. He faces many battles. He faced increased jealousy and hatred from Saul, rejection, opposition. 
he had to live among his enemies. His family was kidnapped. He experienced civil war. As a king, many more battles, a three-year famine, a plague killing 70,000 people, loss of a newborn son, murder within his own family, rebellion from one of his sons, and then another one of his sons, Adonijah, which we haven't even talked about, is going to try to take the kingdom right at the end. How would you like to live that life? And if you did, what would you say? What would be the words you want us to to kind of go away with? James uh, has been unpacking for us major sections of this last section of the book of 2 Samuel. And I thought I might just kind of put it up for you like this so you can kind of see how it works together. I mean, we, we often think kind of chronologically, don't we? Where we'll say, well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. No problem. They do in the, New Te- they do in the Bible often too. But sometimes they rearrange things logically. And, and you, you don't need to remember this word, but the way this is designed, it's called a chiasm. You don't even have to remember it. All it means is this. So much of the focus that he wants you to go away with comes in that middle section. So this isn't arranged chronologically. So, so James noticed as he was preaching through, he talked to you about those the, the, on the left there. David intercedes with God for the people over Saul's disobedience. David intercedes with God for his own disobedience, right? So James looked at those because they were meant to be grouped together even though they're separated. And, and then last week, he looked at this section where it talks about David's mighty men, and and these men that were faithful to God in the way they actually served their king. And in the very middle, you have two songs by David. One one is a psalm where he unpacks and he's going to talk about what God has done in his personal life. He wants you to know that. It's a takeaway. It's an important takeaway. This is what God has done for me in my life. James is actually going to unpack that for us in a couple weeks, so that's all I'm going to say on that. But then you have these last words of David. And the writer of Samuel wants you to go away saying, whatever else you remember about David, don't forget these. So these are seven very important verses. So I want to kind of unpack those with you. Look at verse 1 in 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are the last words of David. Not the last words he spoke, but those last words that are put down for us uh, in an authoritative way. The, 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 The person who puts this together, before David even speaks, says this. Let me tell you something about David. These words. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. Maybe your, maybe your translation says the oracle, okay? Um, I, I'm reading from the NIV here. The, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero or the sweet psalmist of Israel's songs. Here's what I want you to think about. David says, or the writer says, I'm going to talk to you about these authoritative key words that are reliable and true from David. Who was David? 
Was David born the son of a great king? Nope. David was, David was nothing but the son of Jesse, which is important if you're Jesse. But no other clout beyond that. So I'm going to give you, talk to you about these critical words that God speaks through him. Is David somebody great in himself? No. He's just the son of a guy named Jesse. What makes him special? Look at what the text says. This David is the man who was raised on high by God. The, The reason he's in a position where he's in is not because of him, ultimately. It's because God chose him to be the king over Israel, and he is the one that exalts him to this position. And, and, and then goes on to describe him this way. He is, we might say literally, the anointed of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David was just a normal guy living a normal life when God put his finger on him. And he took him this position. He said, you are my, and literally in the Hebrew it says, you are, he is the anointed one. Or he's the Messiah. It's the same word. And so here's this David in this position of the anointed one, the sweet psalmist. When you think of the book of Psalms, don't you think of David? Now, not all the Psalms are written by David, but he's the key figure. And, and God allowed him to write one Psalm after another Psalm. And aren't you glad? I mean, how often have you and I, in a moment of discouragement and, 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 and just being down, said, God, I I just need a word from you. And we start flipping through the Psalms until we find a Psalm that really, it's the words of our heart. Isn't it? And you go like, oh, that's exactly how I feel. Oh, man, I'm like right there with him. Ah, he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so when he speaks, listen. Because as much as I like what Krauthammer said, He's only a man. David's only a man too, but when he speaks, he speaks the words of God. Do you see that? So absolutely critical that you hear what he has to say. David says this, he begins speaking in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So he says, Look out, here it comes. And what comes from his heart and what he puts down on paper for us now is not, boy, my life was really rough. I'm glad I'm dying. Like, I have had it. None of that. It is mixed with all kinds of hope. Not because of David, but because of God. Look at what he says. He starts by telling us as he speaks, what is it that God declares? And then what does David say about what God declares? And that's pretty much it. That's that's all we're looking at. God says this. When I see what God says, I say this. That's it. What does God say? Look at verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, God said this to me, 
When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David says, God pictures for us the ideal king. What should the king of Israel, what should David be like? What should kings after him be like? What's it all about? God declares, this is what I want. I want a king that fears me above everything else. Takes God seriously, respects him, functions underneath his authority. And in the process, does justice and righteousness for the people that he rules over. Folks, do you realize how desperately we need that in our world? Does it not grieve you when you look at the way countries all across this world function? And, and, and you look at leaders who it, it's all about them and controlling and manipulating and using people. And don't, doesn't your heart cry out, God, why can't we have a ruler that just does justice? Cares for the needy, cares for those who struggle, brings justice in the court system, just does the whole thing. Don't you want that? Don't you want a world where that happens? Oh, man, when I hear about this ideal, somebody who fears God and is righteous in the way he rules. And he says, you know what it's like? We've had some nice weather recently, haven't we? Isn't it nice when you get up in the morning and it's not humid? I, I do not like humid. I don't see anything about humid in this passage, which I'm really happy about. Because ever, you, know, you live over there in Israel, you find out it's not nearly humid as it is here. One of the things I liked about being in Israel is it wasn't the humidity issue. I'm a California guy that way, I guess. Or Denver or whatever. But anyway, you know, you get up on that morning, and it's a cool morning. For me, it's, that's in the 60s. For my wife, that's in the upper 70s. But whatever, you know. You get up on that morning, and you go outside, and the sun's coming up, and there's not a cloud in the sky. And it's, 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 it's comfortable. And it's bright. You see, I feel pretty good about today. And this text says, when a ruler rules in such a way, in the fear of God, and in total righteousness, it's like that sun coming up. There's not a cloud in the sky. It's beautiful. You just kind of want to breathe it in. You, you want to hold the moment, don't you? Like, I don't want to give that thing up. I'm not much of a gardener. Anything that grows well at my house, it's, 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 it's the act of God. But, you know, we, 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 do, we have things around that we try to at least weed, you know. Um, but you know what happens? You, you, and I don't know what, I don't know if Jersey is quite the same as well, Lancaster County, where, where I live. I think that it must have some of the best soil in the, in the world. Because when I lived near Philly, I didn't mow my grass near as often as I mow it now. I feel like I mow it like twice a week. I mean, it's great. And, and I still get the, the shavings all over the place, you know. Just, it's, it's, it's just nuts. 
But you know, we get this rainstorm, and then after the rainstorm, the sun comes out, and, and, and it's, it's almost like you can see the grass growing. I mean, isn't it? And, go, and so I know that's not always positive, but here it's speaking positively. It's saying, in a world of Israel where there was so much desert around, how about there's rain which brings refreshment? And how about coming out of that rain, there's sun again, and there's growth, and there's prosperity, and there's life everywhere. Wouldn't you like to live in a world like that? God declares, my ruler fears me, rules justly, and he's like that sun that comes up. He's like the brightness that follows the rain and nourishes the entire earth. And you go like... Yes! So David, what are you going to say about that declaration from God? Because that is an incredible declaration. So David, what do you say? We find his words in verse 5. For, could be perhaps translated therefore, go a variety of different ways, says this. Does not my house stand so with God? I have to tell you, when I was reading this passage, that thing just like, you know how sometimes you read the word, part of it kind of grabs you and you just, you can't let go of it because it's just, what's that mean? What's going on there? So David gives this incredible declaration of fear and righteousness and growth and beauty. And David says, oh, Speaking authoritatively, my house stands that way with God. And I'm thinking, really? 70,000 people died in that plague last I checked. Really? Your house stands that way. Is it because, David, your house is going to function that way beautifully? I don't think so. What reason does David say, that's mine. That, that, that's my house. It, he doesn't say, because I was such a great king, does he? Look at what he says. This is really significant. Look. Does not my, hand, my house stand so with God? Why, David, would you say that? Here's why. For he, speaking of God, has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. I see this ideal. I say it's mine, but it's not because of me. I haven't done so well. I mean, did better than most, did a lot better than Saul. No. I have only one claim to that. An idea which I haven't f- fully experienced. I have one claim to that. That back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with me. And he promised in that covenant that there would be a king, a king, a king, a king, and at some point there would be an ideal role. And I look at that And I look at me, and the only reason I say it's mine is because of God and the promise he made to me. Did you see that, folks? It's very, very significant. 
He says, there's another conclusion. My, my, my house stands connected to this just because of God. Secondly, for he, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? All the things I've wrestled with and desired that ultimately I would have a house that would be that. God, help me to be that. Help me to have a house that that's way. God, that's what I want. David says, one day God's going to do it. He will. Do you see where all his confidence resides? Is it, man, was Israel lucky to have me? Ha <laughs> ha, you guys had the greatest man with, not his last words at all. His last words are, this is the ideal. I don't live it. But God's going to give it to me. It's only what he can do. Wow, folks. <laughs> Isn't that good? Mm. I love it. I love it. Okay. Let me show you something here. Just to make the point. This week, I went back through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And um, I hope you can read that. But it, it, there's like a baseline. A baseline means neither positive nor negative. Just kind of baseline. Right? Everything above that baseline is a good response by David. Faithful, courageous responses. Everything below that line is a fearful, rebellious response by David. Now, you, know, you may not even be able to read all the verses so, or all the chapters there, but do you get the point? I mean, do you look at that and say, good David's man is just stellar, man. He's up there. He's just oh, the whole time. Is that what you find? No, I get dizzy looking at that thing. Do you see? So when David stands here and makes this declaration, say, God, God, th that is for me. You've given that to me. And there will come a day, he goes on to say, I'm sorry, I should have read this to you, verse 6 and 7. So on the one hand, I will prosper. But on the other hand, worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David says, there is going to be this experience where this ideal will be experienced in such a way that there will only be good and all wickedness and evil will be gone. Do you see that? Man, I want that, David says. God, you're going to cause me to prosper in my house in such a way that that's going to happen and all evil gone. Thank you, God. David says, if you don't remember anything else about me, will you remember that God took a know-nothing son of Jesse and made him king? And walked with him through his life and in the process made a promise about his house that God would accomplish. I haven't experienced that fully. But I know it's coming. Do you see? So if we did a series, 
on 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and then we went over to Chronicles and cross-referenced everything. You know what we would find? What happens after David dies? Solomon comes to the throne. And you think, finally, we've got it, right? Oh, Solomon, yes, he prays for wisdom. God gives him wisdom. This is so good. And he dies a fool. You track his life. And at the end, he's got all kinds of problems and opposition because he went against God. He did not fear God. The man who was wise became the fool. And after him, the, the nation splits. The, 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 there's the north and there's, there's the south. Every one of the northern kings is wicked. Clear through. Down, finally exiled, done. The southern tribes, they go a little bit longer before they... And, and if you look in there, Rehoboam and, and company, there's 20 guys, kings listed. Just look at the first 10. And what you'll find is five good guys, five not-so-good guys, evil guys. But by the time you get to the second ten, there's only three good guys and seven which are wicked. And at the end, it's just wicked king after wicked king after wicked king and into exile. So you're hearing the last words of David and you're saying, there's just no hope. I, I track with all his house and all I find is his house gets worse and worse. And by the end, they're exiled. And what about these last words of David? The prophet's right. Jeremiah 23, Isaiah 11 says this. Can I just read part of it to you? I love it. I love it. It's so good. Isaiah 11 says this. A, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips will he slay the wicked. Man, alive. I'm going like, that sounds like this guy. Doesn't it? David comes and he says, Lord, here's the ideal. I'm connected to it, but not because of me or my house. We just Always come short. But I'm connected to it because you've made me a promise. And when the nations are going to go into exile, through the prophets, God comes along and says, yeah, that thing looks like it. That, you know, it looks like there's nothing left there. And up comes a shoot. And that shoot is going to blossom. And when you get to your New Testament and you start reading John 1 and Luke 1 and you read about righteousness and you read about light and you read about all those things, you go, it's Jesus. And, and Jesus comes and these prophecies and these promises which were not possible with any human right leader. David on his best day 
will not fulfill that stuff perfectly. Nobody would. God must become a man. He must walk among us. And he must be that king. Can I show you one other way which we see this? I I was thinking about this when James was was preaching on this uh, two weeks ago. The the outer two. Let me me just read it to you and, and, and just help you think about this. It just, again, it shows us David, Jesus, okay? Watch this. So David intercedes with God for the people over Saul's disobedience. David didn't do anything wrong, did he? Uh, what, what it, what, that, that famine that had come to the, to the land for three years, that was all because of something Saul had done. So David had to stand as an intercessor, as a mediator, didn't he? Between God and man to make sure this matter was handled. So God was angry. An intercessor was needed. A mediator was needed. Sacrifice must be paid, and God would be appeased. Do you see that? And that's what happens. I mean, with all the other complications that we feel uneasy about when we read that, we go like, okay, I got that one. But in chapter 24, David's not merely part of the solution. He's part of the problem. So God is angry But the guy that's supposed to be the mediator isn't innocent. He's part of the problem. And yes, he intercedes. And yes, there's costly sacrifice. And yes, God is appeased. But David's part of the problem. What about if with the wrath of God, as Romans 1 tells us, which is on the world, if we could have an intercessor That was always innocent. That was never part of the problem. And what about if he doesn't just intercede for us? But he is the sacrifice. Then God's wrath could be forever gone. Do you see? See, David, on his best day, can't be the ideal king. Nobody in here could be the ideal king. We need King Jesus. And King Jesus comes on the scene. And yeah, yeah, you say, whoa, whoa, Finkbeiner, the world's not a beautiful place yet. I agree. I agree. But the king has come. The foundation has been set. He died. He was buried. He resurrected. He's ascended on high as the resurrected Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And I know something, folks. This has already happened And at some point, although it's not yet, Jesus is coming back. And we live in the midst of the partial fulfillment of all that stuff. Do you see that? You say, yeah, but the world, it's not, it's not. Until Jesus Christ comes back the second time, I get, I got it. But the foundation has been laid. And people are already being transformed. They become part of Jesus' church. They become forgiven sons and daughters of Jesus, uh, of God. It's an amazing thing. And so when I read these last words of David, this is what kind of hits me. While David knew God's covenant with him would usher in a safe and successful messianic rule, It would ultimately 
only occur in the coming of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Here it is, promised, declared. David says, go away with this. God is going to do something. It's going to happen in my family because he's promised. But it ain't going to be because of me. It's going to be because of what God is going to do ultimately to make that a reality. So you're here today. And maybe you're visiting with us or maybe you've been around for a while. Here's what I would tell you. It's already started. God is at work in powerful ways with the coming of Christ. The Spirit has been given. Are you part of that? Will you come under the authority of that king who will function and does function in perfect love and righteousness and mercy and justice and holiness all the time? Or will you be the enemy? who stands with a fist and says, in the words of Frank Sinatra, I'll have it my way. They're, they're, they're the options. And th this picture of the ideal king is very clear. He will righteously rule and all of his enemies will be removed. I mean, that's it, folks. You go and you read the book of Revelation. You read where the story ends. You can find out. Read the last couple chapters, you got it. Chapter 19 and following, you got it. And what you will find is a king who comes and lives amongst us and punishes all of his enemies, and we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth in bliss and wonder forever. And he will be in our midst. Do you see that? I mean, that's where it's all going. I mean, if you're here today and you say like, no, no, man, I, I like Frank Sinatra. Well, maybe you do. That's no way to live. That's the way of a fool. Come, come to Christ. Bow the knee. Christ, forgive me of all my sins. You've died for me. Let him save you and change your life. That's what he wants to do. It's all part of the, the solution. It's, we're part of the problem. You say, I know Christ then these words should give you great hope. Because as we sang today, you are connected to the one who will forever love you. You are connected to the one who will rule, and you will rule with him. It's an amazing thing to me. There's nothing better on earth than being a forgiven Christ follower. Nothing. Will you live that way, brothers and sisters? Don't play games. God is doing something and we are part of it. Be all in. And see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you are moving through history we can either be part of what you're doing or we will be pushed aside. Father, overwhelm us with the wonder of Jesus. The one, the God who has become one of us. 
You have written yourself into our story, Lord, so that we can become part of your story. May we bow the knee to you. And if we know you, Lord, may we renew afresh that we rejoice that we can follow the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, thank you for these last words from David. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.